is the foundation of the entire spiritual path. And as you know, it's the first step in the Noble Eightfold Path of the Buddhist teachings. When we have right understanding about things, both in worldly matters and also in spiritual matters, everything we do is well-directed because it's built on that foundation of clear understanding. Everything we do is onward leading because it's in harmony with the way things actually are, in harmony with the goal of liberation, of freedom. Without right understanding, there's a basic misdirection in our lives. We don't quite know what's going on. Something is not quite right. We're somewhat out of sync with the true nature of things. And so with misunderstanding, with basic wrong understanding, there is an underlying sense of unease or alienation in our lives. The first level of right understanding is something you're quite familiar with. It's the basic realization of the law of karma, which in its most simple form is the understanding that actions bring results. Actions have consequences. And so we need to pay attention to the choices we make. Because our choices are leading us someplace. And we need to consider carefully whether they're leading to where we want to go. This is the first, the first level of right understanding. Law of karma, that actions have consequences, that we need to pay attention to our choices. The second level of right understanding which is about some more fundamental questions. It's about the questions of who am I? What does it mean to be alive? What is life? To answer these questions, I mean, these are the most profound questions that we can consider in order to understand it, in order to come to some understanding, we need to investigate very deeply and carefully into the very nature of the mind, the nature of the body. We can answer these questions for ourselves. As we develop strong awareness, a strong investigative power, one of the most startling things that happens in the course of this development is we find that we're not who we imagined ourselves to be. Now, we all have some idea of who we are, and when we look carefully and more closely, we see that's not who I, that's not who I am at all. 
we find that we're not the body, and that we're not our thoughts, and that we're not our emotions. And most startling of all, we're not even consciousness. What's left? We see that the very notion of I, the very notion of self, is a concept, is a fabrication. As we get glimpses of this, we begin to taste even momentarily that the very notion of self, of someone here, is a fabrication of mind. This is a great surprise and also a great relief. The relief was expressed most succinctly by a Sri Lankan monk who said, no self, no problem. (laughs) And that sums it all up. No self, no problem. But the idea in the experience of selflessness, or in Pali, Pali word is anatta, this is the most puzzling part of the Buddha's teachings. What does it mean, selflessness? What does it mean to say that there's no self, there's no I? If there's no self and if there's no I, who came here? <laughs> you know, and who's, who's making all this effort? Who gets reborn and who remembers things? And who falls in love and who gets angry? And, I mean, the, the questions go on and on. If there's no self, what does all this mean? Who's doing any of this? The deep understanding, realization of selflessness is the jewel of the Buddhist teachings. Because it's this understanding which is at the heart of a free mind. Tonight I would like to talk about how we create, how the mind creates this notion of self. Where does it come from? If the truth, if the reality is selfless, egoless, why are we imprisoned by this notion of self? How does that come about? I'd like to look at how this notion of self is created and how we can free ourselves from the illusion. The mind is the faculty of cognizance. That is the knowing faculty of mind. When we look for it, when we look for this mind, this knowing mind, where is it? When we look for it, we can't find it. It's invisible. It's clear. 
it's lucid. But it's not something that we can touch, it's not something we can taste, we can't smell it, we can't see it. This is the, this is the great mystery of consciousness. Sometimes it's <coughs> compared to space. Well, the sense of the mind is very spacious, or like open space. But even space is already too much. And space isn't much, but it's too much. The, in one, in one uh, Tibetan teaching, it's called the cognizing power of emptiness. So that's, that's getting close. You know, in terms of understanding the nature of this knowing, the nature of consciousness. It knows sight, it knows sound, it knows smell, it knows taste, knows touch sensation, knows thoughts. <laughs> if we were... This, is, this might be a hard example to imagine, but if we were a corpse, <laughs> there would be an ear, and there might be sound waves hitting the ear, but there would be no knowing, there would be no consciousness. So if we think of the difference between ourselves and the corpse, it's the faculty of knowing which is the difference. And consciousness is present. The mind <coughs> is also more than just knowing. <coughs> because in each moment of experience, in each moment of knowing a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste, Along with the knowing arises a whole assortment of variety of different mental qualities, mental factors. And these mental factors <coughs> color consciousness in particular ways. So, for example, greed and hatred and fear and mindfulness and love and compassion and concentration. Each one of these is a factor of mind which conditions or colors consciousness in its own way. Now some of these factors are wholesome and they bring happiness. Some of these factors of mind which arise are unwholesome, which means when we identify with them or when we get lost in them, they bring suffering. So there's the natural purity and clarity and lucidity of consciousness. Because its only function is to know. Then there's a whole variety of different mental factors which arise in different moments and color things. Okay, this is all setting the stage. There's one particular mental factor, one factor in particular, 
which when it arises and is out of balance, it imprisons us in the contraction of self. And so we need to understand very clearly and acutely how this particular mental factor is working. And this is the factor of mind called perception. And as, you know, in all the Abhidhamma explanations, there's very precise definition of each of these factors and how they function. The function of perception is to recognize and remember the different appearances. By picking out the distinguishing marks And then perception stores it in memory through concepts. Just some very simple examples. We see certain colors and we recognize them as red or blue or yellow. That recognition is the, is the working of perception. It picks out the distinguishing characteristic of red or blue or yellow. It remembers it and then stores it in memory with that concept of red. And we do this all the time with everything we're perceiving. With man, woman, tree, house, buildings, everything. We perceive it, we recognize it, and store it in memory through a concept. Okay, so when perception arises along with mindfulness, What happens is the surface recognition frames the experience for a clearer seeing, for a clearer understanding of the impermanent, insubstantial nature. And this, you can, you can understand the use of mental noting in this way. The mental noting is an expression of perception. Because what noting is doing is simply recognizing in-breath, out-breath, pressure, tightness, thinking. It recognizes what's there. It frames it so that then we can see the underlying nature of that appearance. That it is impermanent, that it is insubstantial. There's nothing solid there. The problem arises And this is, the, this is the crux of our problem. The problem arises when there's strong perception without mindfulness. Because then we get caught, we get imprisoned in this created world of concepts. <coughs> I'll give a few examples of how this happens. And it happens on many levels, and it happens all the time. We have many experiences of this. Have you had the experience of, let's say, going into the dining room, you know, when there are a lot of people around, and seeing the difference of when we go in 
and we're noting, we're aware, seeing, 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 with a strong mindfulness of what we're perceiving. We're perceiving men and women and things in the dining room, but when there's strong mindfulness present, seeing, 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 it's as if we stay back in the awareness of it. Most of the time, probably, when you go into the dining room, you're not noting seeing, seeing, seeing. And I've seen this in myself so often on retreat. I'll go in, and if that mindfulness is not there with the perception, it's like the mind goes out through the eye door. It's perceiving you know, all of these people and all of the things and all of the food, and it's as if the mind engages. It gets caught up in all of the concepts I have about the different people and what's happening and what they're doing, and we get caught in this drama of judgment and comparing and evaluation and liking and disliking. What has happened? Perception is there without the balance of mindfulness, and so we get caught, we get pulled in. through the prison of concepts. I mean, you can feel the difference. It's so, it's so immediately apparent. And then, you know, if in a moment of remembering, oh, yes, seeing, 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 it's amazing that immediate settled back, it's as if, oh, yeah, we wake up. You know, we come out of the movie, we come out of the drama of it, and again, we're just in the space of clear awareness, recognizing appearances, but not being caught by them. So this is the difference between when perception is there with mindfulness and when the perception is there without mindfulness. We see the same thing, and this is just a further elaboration of this, you know, as we recognize different people. We've met many people in our lives. We see them again. We recognize them through the power of perception. And if we are caught in that perception, we create a whole image of that person. I know who that person is. It's like we put them in a box based on our past memories, our past associations. We're not seeing clearly the person in that moment at all. What we're seeing, what we're relating to, is our perception of that person. It's very hard to stay with beginner's mind. This doesn't mean that we forget everything we've known about other people. It doesn't mean that we forget past experience. It means that we're not collapsed into that perception. Rather, there's the recognition, and at the same time, we are still completely open to how that person actually is right now. So it's a space of much greater freedom of interaction, of relationship.
We can see it with people. We can see it with any repetitive experience. And I'm sure you've experienced this just watching the breath or a step. If we're on the level of perception, oh yeah, there's another in-breath. I've seen 10 million of them already. <laughs> or another step. It's like we, we, we recognize it. We recognize, yes, that's a breath, but we're staying on that perception recognition level. We've created a concept about it, that's the breath. Without mindfulness, we don't see the reality of it. We're lost in that percep perception or recognition. It's a whole different world. When this imbalance is present, the imbalance between perception and mindfulness, it's a tremendous limitation on our ability to see things as they are. Just, or to see things in a new way, a different way, because we're locked in to a habit pattern of recognition. One story which many of you know, but it, it so well illustrates this. The son of a friend of mine was in grade school quite young, and the teacher was asking the children, what color is an apple? And most of the kids in the class said red. Apples are red. This kid said white. <laughs> the teacher said wrong. <laughs> you know, apples are red, and sometimes they're green, and maybe a little yellow, but they're certainly not white. Whoever saw a white apple? <laughs> The kid insisted apples are white. <laughs> and the teacher was really insistent. Of course, when you cut open an apple, what color is it? The kid was seeing something in an unusual way because he wasn't locked into the perception of apple being red. He was able to see it in a different way. We do this a lot. I mean, this, this is the power that perception has over us. We get caught by the concepts we've created through this power of recognition and then using the concept to store it in our memory. Okay, so there's the mind. <clears throat> the mind, in this sense, means consciousness, which is which is pure knowing. Consciousness is pure. It's just the knowing faculty. And a good part of our practice is to explore the mystery of this consciousness, to explore the mystery of knowing. And there are all the mental factors, some wholesome, some unwholesome, which color consciousness in different ways. And how the factor of perception without mindfulness keeps us on the surface recognition of things. Okay. There's one particular perception we have of the world 
which is the source of many, many, many mistaken notions. It's one perception we have which just keeps us going in the wrong direction. And from this perception we draw many inaccurate conclusions. For this reason it's important to understand how this particular perception is working and how we get caught in it so much. And that's the perception, the quite common one, that we have of the solidity of things. We think that things, objects, are solid. And the language we use keeps reinforcing this, keeps reinforcing our belief in the solidity of things. I'd like to read to you just a few lines from the book Crazy Wisdom by Wes Nisko, who's a friend and one of the editors of The Inquiring Mind. He says, Our language behaves as though reality was solid. On the simplest level, it positions a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as less than real. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. For the Hopi, nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or in process. Many physicists also tell us that action is all there is. Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. So there's a lot of reinforcement for this perception. The very way we speak about things sort of strengthens this notion. The reason it is so dangerous is that as long as we have this perception, as long as we are laboring under this illusion, we are unable to see clearly the impermanent, very insubstantial nature of phenomena. We're missing the truth of how things are because of this perception. We may know it intellectually. We may know intellectually that things aren't solid. We may know intellectually that things are changing and insubstantial. But that's not enough. Because in order to transform our lives, in order to live in freedom, we need to experience from the inside, in the deepest way, the impermanence and insubstantiality. So then it's helpful to explore what keeps reinforcing this perception of solidity. Why is it so strong in our lives? And it's common. This this is the common perception of the world. There are a few reasons, there are a few causes or conditions which keep this 
perception strongly lodged in our minds. One condition or reason has to do with the rapidity of change. Things are changing so rapidly that we don't see the change. You know, in these lights, there's a flow of electric current. We can't see that flow at all. And so it appears as one thing. It appears solid in a certain way, unbroken. You know, when you go to the movies, <coughs> do you see the separate frames of the film? No, and it would defeat the purpose of going. But that's what's really happening. There are a lot of separate frames happening very quickly. We don't see it. So rapidity of change and our inability to be focused enough to see that rapidity of change (coughs) contributes to our notion of solidity. Another condition, another reason is that we observe things from a distance. Now, when you go outside and you look at trees from a distance, we can't see individual leaves. When we look at a tree from a distance, or you know, a whole hillside of trees, we really see one solid mass of color. Because it's from a distance, We don't see that each tree has innumerable leaves, and each leaf has innumerable other things. There's a wonderful short movie called The Power of Ten. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It starts with a couple sitting in a rowboat in the middle of a lake. And what it does, and I can't remember which direction it does first, but it starts to focus in, you know, as if, uh, going in like uh, with a micro, it gets closer and closer, you know, and s- so you get very close and you see the two people, and then it goes into the body of the people, and the body breaks up into cells and cells into I don't know whatever parts there are in cells, and then atoms and electrons, and until there's just this vastness of space with you know appearances arising and changing. And then it starts to pull back, you know, and things get more and more solid and more and more contracted until again there's the man and the woman sitting in the boat. And then it starts going the other way, and they get more and more distant, you know, further and further away, and it's taking in the whole lake, and then it's taking in the whole countryside, and then it's taking in the whole earth, and it's taking in the whole solar system and galaxy, and then Maha galaxies and whatever. Until again, there's nothing solid there. You know, and it's a beautiful visual example of how our surface perception and recognition of solidity of things is so completely relative. It's not how things actually are. And so when we look very, very closely, at the nature of experience, we begin to break apart this notion. We see that it's an illusion of perception. One aspect of not seeing things closely enough is that we don't see the composite nature of phenomena. 
You know, we, we take a look at these bodies. Yeah, this, this is the body. This is who I am. This is me. What is the body? Is the body a thing? When we look very carefully, <laughs> the great, amazing discovery is that there's no body. I mean, you tell that to somebody in the street, they get locked up at IMS. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a very traditional Buddhist meditation, contemplation on the 32 parts of the body. You know, not, and it goes through you know, different, different parts. And the whole purpose of it is to begin to dissect, begin to see, okay, what is it that we call body? It's actually a composite made up of a lot of different parts in a relationship. Then you could look more closely at those parts and break them up. And so the more closely you look, you see there is nothing solid there at all. In fact, there's hardly anything there at all. But what's so surprising, it's so counter to conventional understanding, conventional wisdom. And that's the amazing power of our meditation practice. We begin to break through the... It's really breaking through the prison, breaking through the, the bonds of our conventional perception to see actually what it is that's going on. Now, how much of our sense of ourselves comes from identification with the body? A lot. That's a lot of who we think we are is related to the body. When we look more carefully, more closely, that begins to to let go begin to see it in a completely different way. It doesn't mean that we don't see the whole. It doesn't mean that we give up our perception of the body, of man, of woman, of thing. We do see the whole, but we don't take it to be an existing thing in itself. We don't invest in it a level of reality that it doesn't have. We see that it's simply the relationship of a lot of different parts working together. Okay, so when perception is stronger than mindfulness, we recognize appearances and then solidify these appearances through the use of concepts. Some of these concepts are useful. I'm not suggesting we don't use them, but we have to see them for what they are. Concepts solidify appearances. We need to see how this is happening in our lives. A few examples of how we do this. There are many examples. Example of the body is one. Some concepts which we've created and solidified as being real in a way that doesn't serve us. 
one very strong conditioning of concept is the concept of time. We have created the construct of past and future. It's tremendously freeing to examine exactly what the reality of past and future is. What is the past? What is the future? When we look, when we look for ourselves, we see that our whole experience of the past and our whole experience of the future is as a thought in the present moment. That is the only way we experience the past, and it's the only way we experience the future. It's as a thought in the present moment. This is tremendously liberating. When we, see, when we really see it, when we get this. But when we don't see it, these thoughts arise, the thoughts of remembrances or recollections or planning or anticipating, these thoughts arise. When we don't see them just as thoughts, what happens? We create this concept around these thoughts, the past, the future, and then we live our lives tremendously burdened, tremendously weighed down. We carry the past and future around with us, struggling under their burden. <laughs> and what's really happening is that there is a thought or a feeling or an image arising in the moment. The thought itself, as a thought, is very light. A thought is nothing. But we get pulled into the content. We get pulled into the concept. We make past and future something real, something solid. And we are caught by it, we're imprisoned by it. <laughs> this is what's so fantastic about the practice. You just have all this time to watch this. How many, how many times during the day, you know, in a sitting or a walking, the mind creates these worlds through planning or remembering? <laughs> and it's fantastic just to watch how it happens. Yeah, and we get lost in these worlds. And sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're, sometimes they're hell realms. You know, we've managed to do that. If we're not seeing them for what they are, that is, as a thought, as a feeling, as an image arising in the present moment, we have been reborn in that world for that period of time. And then just that magic moment of mindfulness comes again. It's like we wake up, oh yeah. It's like waking up from a dream, just a thought. And so this is our practice to over and over again wake up. And to understand, to see what has happened. The Buddha talked of obstacles to concentration and two of the main obstacles he talked about 
was getting lost in the past and the future. So this is not just something from our time. <laughs> this is the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind has been to do this. It's a tremendous obstacle. We get lost because we believe the surface recognition of perception. We get lost in the content. We're perceiving the content. We get lost in it. When we don't have the mindfulness, when we don't have the awareness to see, yes, this is a thought. That's all it is. St. Augustine had a wonderful remark to make about this. He said, if the past and future really exist, where are they? <laughs> okay, so time, just the notion of time. You, know, you can also see it, you can also see how powerful it works even in your thoughts about the retreat, you're going along and maybe you're having a good day and things are working well and clear and bright and you're happy, and the thought comes, oh, it's going so quickly. I wish I could be here for another six months. <laughs> and so you have some perception of time leading you in one-to-one -one feeling. Or you're having a terrible day, you know, and it's full of pain and restlessness and agitation and boredom, and you think of, the endless hours stretching out in front of you. <laughs> and so then that perception of time conditions your experience, actually changes the quality of your experience. In both cases, they are only thoughts. That's all that's happening. If we don't see it as a thought, it conditions our present experience. If we do see it as a thought, psh, it's nothing. The thought arises, it passes, there's no problem. Okay. Time. This is a tremendously powerful concept which we've created. We need to see it. Again, it's not to throw it out. It's a useful concept. But we need to see that it's a construct of our minds. Another concept which is very powerful is just the, the idea, the construct of ownership, of possessiveness. We certainly do it with the body. This is my body. You know, and we have all sorts of problems arising. What happens when it gets sick? Don't like it. <laughs> Why don't we like it? It's like an affront, it's an insult. To who we are, because we're identified with it. <laughs> the notion of ownership or possessiveness is, of course, it's obvious, sort of, the degree of attachment people can have to that in the world and the problems. But even on a retreat, you know, you go into the dining room and somebody's sitting down in the seat you always sit in. I've, I've experienced it a lot, you know, when I'm on retreat. There's definitely that moment. <laughs> what are they doing in my seat? <laughs> you know. Where's that coming from? You know, your place in the hall. 
There's a concept of time, of ownership. There, there are many, many concepts of self-image. We create all kinds of images about ourselves. One of the most uh, destructive ones, destructive concepts in the context of a meditation retreat is the self-image we create of good yogi, bad yogi, you know, and comparing ourselves with others. There are a lot of stories about that, but it's <laughs> one aspect of self-image, you know, which is again an interesting thing to look at, is the concept of age. A lot of our self-image is tied up with our idea of how old we are. Act your age. <laughs> how old is a thought? How old is tightness? You know, Age is a concept when we actually are there in the moment's experience, just in the arising moment. It's timeless, it's ageless. It's in a totally different realm. How old is knowing? How old is consciousness? It doesn't make sense. The question doesn't make sense. Again, the concept has its use. You know, we have birthdays and we get birthday presents. <laughs> but that's about all the use it has. <laughs> we have to see. We have to see how we get caught, how we get in these constructs, which are very, they're so conventional, they're so accepted, we never stop to look. Is it really reflective of actual experience? The deepest concept, the one that's most deeply rooted and the biggest problem, is the concept of self, the concept of I. There is this tremendously strong belief very deeply conditioned, habituated, that there is someone here, that there is a self, there is an I, there is a me, to whom experience happens. It's as if everything is coming back to the center. The Buddha's great discovery, his great awakening, was to see that, like all of these other concepts, this doesn't point to anything that's actually there. Can we be with experience like this, instead of like this? We don't need to refer everything back to a sense of self. We can be equally, in fact, more, open to what's actually arising just through being present. Yes, this is arising and is known. This is arising and is known. This is extra, this referral back to a center. But why is this concept so deep? Why are we so caught in this contraction of self? And it is a contraction. It's like we, we're tightly bound by it. One reason is that we don't 
see clearly the composite nature of what we call self. We have a surface perception, recognition. We look in the mirror, yeah, that looks like me. You know, and we look tomorrow and it looks pretty much the same. <laughs> so it just is, that, that surface perception is continually reinforced. This is who I am. But when we look more carefully, we begin to see the composite nature that what we are is a constellation of mental, physical phenomena continually arising and changing and interacting. There's nothing there that lasts long enough to be called self. When we're really looking, when we're on the level of momentary experience, it's like this, this constant display of appearances that's in constant transformation. Is hardness self? Yeah, I'm hardness. <laughs> you know, or I'm heat. Or I'm a thought. When we really look and are experiencing what is happening moment to moment, we begin to break free of the chains of this concept. There's a second reason that we're caught by this concept of self. The first is that we haven't seen clearly the composite nature, and so we're just in the surface perception. The second reason is that even when we do begin to get to the level of actual experience, you know, of thoughts, of emotions, of sensations, of knowing, there's another factor at work which contributes strongly to this notion of self, and that is the factor of wrong view, which has the nature to identify with the appearances. It's that process in the mind which takes a thought or takes a sensation or an emotion as being I, as being self. You know, and I think you know it well and can recognize it uh, clearly, this process of identification with what's happening. That's not part of experience itself. Thought is just arising. Sound is just arising. Sight is just <coughs> arising. There's no problem with any of it. The problem arises when we're not mindful and we identify with sensations in the body. We take them personally. Yes, this is happening to me. That to me is extra. That is an extra process that we're adding. Can we be simply with the appearance? Sensations appear and are known. That's all. It's like coming back to utter simplicity. not adding anything extra. Appearances arise and they're known, that's all. But we have to see how we, we do add this, add this process of identification, of claiming things to be I. We can see it with sensations, in the sense of feeling they're referring back to me. 
We can see it a lot with thoughts. Thoughts come through the mind. And if we're not mindful, if we're not aware, oh yeah, I'm thinking. There are a few exercises you can do to free yourself from this identification. You could view all thoughts as coming from the person next to you. <laughs> you know, every thought that comes in your mind is really your neighbor's, and it's just kind of passing through. If you saw it in this way, you would have a very different relationship to the thoughts. <laughs> Another way, <laughs> that, one, that one is fun to do. You just kind of sit here and you enjoy this. Another way is to notice, to really notice how thoughts self-liberate. Meaning, when we're aware, the thought, the thought appears, and we notice them, shh, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. They're so insubstantial. They have no solidity at all. There's no power to them at all when we see them for what they are. And to practice, just to practice settling back into awareness and noticing these thoughts, they appear and they're gone. They self-liberate. There's nothing we have to do except not get identified, not add that. Sort of one of the phrases from one of the texts that describe thoughts being like clouds passing through the sky with no roots, no home. And I really like that image. It's just thoughts, no roots, no home. But what we do is we root these thoughts. It's like the, the thought is kind of just passing through. <laughs> and it's kind of pull down a root. Why? Let the mind just stay open. Let it be free. Thoughts come and go. No roots, no home. We identify with emotions a lot. We identify with sensations in the body, we identify with thoughts, we identify with emotions. Happiness comes, anger comes, sadness comes, fear comes. All of these feelings, emotions, are arising because of conditions. Certain conditions are there, the emotion appears. But then we claim it, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm whatever. That I and mine is extra. We don't even stop with that. We're not even satisfied with saying, I'm angry. We go even further. We build a whole superstructure, a skyscraper of self. I'm an angry person, or I'm a fearful person. Or, so not, not only are we identifying with the emotion, we're creating this whole persona of self in that identification. And all of that is the structure on top of just the arising of a particular feeling at a particular time. You know, we, we talked before about how to work with strong emotions, how to be free in the midst of emotions. 
the emotions themselves are not the problem. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, just like bodily sensations, just like thoughts. That's okay. The problem is when we claim them as being I, as mine. And then we also identify with knowing, with consciousness, on the most subtle level. I'm knowing. Even as we disidentify with all of these other phenomena, well, I'm the one who knows it. So we have to become aware of the awareness itself. To see that the knowing, the awareness, is not I, is not self. It's in understanding this that allows us to live in freedom. You know, it's the construct of self which keeps us imprisoned. It's a contraction. And it's the awareness of selflessness, of anatta, of emptiness of all phenomena. That is the heart of a free mind. simply come back to this again and again and settle back into awareness. It's not something we have to get or create. It's something we have to come back to every time we forget. We forget a lot. We get pulled out a lot through the power of perception, through the power of concepts. But every time we remember, we wake up coming back to awareness. Let's close with a quotation teaching from Kalu Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan meditation master. He died a few years ago. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concepts. There is a reality and we are that reality. Just the reality of phenomena arising and passing. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. Because we're not identified with anything at all. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. Because we're not identifying with anything, we're not separating ourselves from anything. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. This is our practice. This is what we're doing moment to moment. Let's sit for a few minutes.
simply notice as the breath appears, it appears by itself. And as it appears, it's known. Different sensations appear, and they're known. Thought appears, and it's known. Simply rest in awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.